But now, let me kind of transition this, and it's really awkward as a speaker to do this because there's just no clean way to do it. But we're going to get into the Word of God. And Anthony said, every single Sunday, he said, I think we as pastors at Redemption have gotten cocky. Because we, when the schedule came out to preach through Revelation, we're like, oh, yeah, we got this. Let's do it. The same with when he's like, hey, did you see the schedule that Revelation is what's ending this year? I was like, oh, sounds good to me. I'm down. I, I didn't think about it twice. And then I started reading Revelation a couple weeks later, and I was like, oh, boy, what did we get into? And, and that's where Anthony starts like sending me. He's like, read this chapter, read this chapter, read this chapter. I'm like... This is a lot more work than I expected. Um, and one of the scholars that we've both been reading, his name is uh, his last name is Gorman. He wrote this book called uh, "Reading Revelation Responsibly." He says this, and this is his quote: um, that Revelation chapter four and chapter five is the hermeneutical key to the book of Revelation. Let me say this in another way. The only way or a better way to interpret and understand Revelation, the entire book, is to understand and have clarity in what chapter four and five is saying and what it means. So thank you, Pastor Anthony, for giving, scheduling me on this Sunday for these chapters. Basically, these are like, when you think about this, it's like the crux of faithful interpretation of the book of Revelation is dependent on these two chapters being understood well. So no pressure. Um, If you're new to this church or first time visiting, good luck with us getting into Revelation. Put your seatbelts on. Here we go. Um, Just kidding. It's going to be fine. It's mostly me you should be worried about. So I'm going to pause. I'm going to pray one more time for this message for myself and for us. So join me in prayer. Lord, I just thank you that, um, that you chose to give us the word of God, your word, Lord, that it's been recorded, it's been honored, it's been upheld throughout history, Lord God, and that we now can look at your scriptures, Lord, and we can understand who you are and what true reality and what your redemptive plan is, Lord God. I just submit my, my tiredness, my anxiety, all the things that are going on in my heart and my mind to you right now, Lord God. I submit those to you, and I receive and ask that your spirit be present, Lord God, and that this moment on Sunday, Lord, as we gather as as family and as the people of God and we partake in this worship, Lord, that your spirit is present with us and that you would uh, soften the hearts and minds and help us to better see what is the book of Revelation saying and doing for us, Lord, and especially chapters four and five. So, Lord God, thank you for being present. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. All right, so you guys may or may not know this about me, uh, but I'm a car guy. I'm really into motorcycles. In high school, I pretty much only attended auto shop. I I didn't really go to my other classes. Auto shop, like, gave me a lot of peace and purpose in my life. So I love cars, and the only way I really graduated high school was my senior project. I took this little mini truck, and I put air ride suspension on it, so you could, like, flip these switches, and you could, like, 
driving around all cool. Um, I love that kind of stuff. Uh, currently, I have uh, like an 80s Kawasaki vintage motorcycle I'm trying to rebuild. Uh, I built a custom Harley that was stolen, so it paid for our wedding with the insurance money, so kind of praise God for that. Jack was pretty stoked we got a sweet wedding. Um, but yeah, I love cars and motorcycles, and that's like some of the best things I love to do. And when I was growing up, I wasn't a Christian. And so I would see these license plates frames or bumper stickers that said, in case of rapture, keys are in the ignition. And I'd be like, whoa, that's cool. I was like, man, I really don't know what rapture means or is, but I hope this happens because that's a nice car. Like, I'm like, man, this is sweet. Like, this rapture takes place. My garage is stacked full of, like, sweet cars. Like, how, like, what happens? Like, this person vanishes or they evaporate, whatever. Honestly, like, who cares? Like, look at these cars. This is going to be awesome. Um, so even as a non-Christian, I was influenced by the theology of the book of Revelation. And so what, what is funny about that, I shouldn't say funny, that's not the best word. Um, what's happened in our culture is we have this strong leaning to this predictive dispensational or end times theology about the book of Revelation. And that's kind of how we see that. And I think uh, probably many of us could relate to this, or if I'm the only one, like I'm probably the only one. But when I first became a Christian, I'm reading my Bible, I'd hit Revelation. I'm, I tried to read it once and then I was like, no, I'll, I'll skip that. And I'll do a Bible read-through of the year or whatever. But every time I get to Revelation, no, like I won't read that. I'm like, because it's weird. It's confusing. I don't understand it. Um, so I would leave it alone. So I think, and this is where I stand when Anthony says we're a little too cocky as pastors of redemption, I say maybe we are. And then there's some repentance involved in that. But also what I think is there is a lot of bad, not good theology on Revelation out there that's probably been more influential in our culture. So I believe like stepping into this series faithfully and putting in the extra work helps put more better work out there for us. So I'm excited for this and it is a privilege to teach through Revelation now. It's been a lot of work, and I'm, but it's all right. So bear with me now as there's kind of an introduction before the introduction before the introduction. Um, we need to look and understand two terms. Anthony, in his introductory sermon, he gave us one of these terms. Today, I'll give you a little bit of newish term. Gorman had mentioned that in his book when I said hit that quote of chapter four and five is the hermeneutical key to understanding this. What this word hermeneutics is, or hermeneutic, you know scholars, when you invest all this money in education, you spend all this time, you need a fancy word to throw out to confuse people. And you can't just say interpretation. So this word hermeneutic is a fancy biblical, biblically scholarly word that simply means uh, how do you interpret something. Anytime you read something, and then you have a method to interpret it or understand this is basically what is a hermeneutic. Uh, so your view of scripture in whatever form you interpret that scripture to mean is your hermeneutic. And so we can have many ways, many lenses, our 
biases, the way we read, understand things, all shape our hermeneutic. And that's not bad, it's just a normal thing, right? But we have to look at when we're approaching Revelation, we need a better hermeneutic to interpret and understand these writings in order to do this faithfully. And unfortunately, as I kind of explained that, uh, the rapture idea is some of this main theology around Revelation has been predictive. So people actually believed in the last couple decades that we are now the ones who are of all history, we can connect the dots of Revelation to their hidden meetings, to these world events happening to unveil, unveil God's ultimate redemptive narrative. So it's based on us now that all this final plan of salvation is coming into place. And that's kind of this whole main way of seeing Revelation through predictive theology. However, this morning as we follow John into chapters four and five in the book of Revelation, we're going to see something a little bit different. The next term, and Anthony defined this week one, and if, if you're new here or you've missed some of these, like we really encourage you to kind of listen through, go back, and we have all these sermons posted, and not just because it's like the best stuff in the world, but truly Revelation is such a powerful book to form us as disciples and followers of Jesus and communicate the true reality of the world. These sermons are really helpful to understand. So week one, Anthony brought up this term apocalypse. Um, Pop quiz, everybody. You ready for this? What is an apocalypse? Uh, sorry if you're a student and you're in the thick of it right now. You're all triggered by pop quiz. You're like, no, I just had the most immense test of my all semester. I'm like, don't say pop quiz. But anyways, I'll tell you the answer. Apocalypse, when you, when, when you say that word, what I typically think and what probably most people think is this dystopian kind of like sci-fi future end times event that like destroys all things. Then there's like zombies involved or like there's five of us left to scavenge and fight or whatever it is, this, this apocalypse creates this imagination and this perspective, right? That's pretty normal for our culture. When, when John says apocalypse, or in the Greek word apocalypsis, the meaning is simply, you define it in two words, unveiling or revealing. So the word apocalypse simply means to unveil or reveal. So when you hear the word apocalypse, just think, oh, something is being revealed. It's not necessarily this like cultural idea of this burned out world or whatever. Um, so why is this important? Today, chapter four, we, we leave chapters one, two, and three, which are the introductions. We talk about some churches. Uh, John establishes himself as the writer. He gives us the genres of this book. And then chapter four is where things get a little weird and bizarre for us. If you were in the first century, you're a Jewish or Roman, you probably would read this and be like, oh yeah, this makes sense, I'm into it. 21st century readers, we see this and we're like, what is happening right now? So chapter four, we take a strong transition and we enter apocalyptic literature. That's why just this little bit of time to introduce, that's so important because you see this shift and we're about to walk into apocalypse and apocalyptic literature. Remember, so this literature is gonna be revealing something to us through images. And just because this is images and it's to encapsulate and captivate our imagination doesn't make it any less real. It's the, just a different way to communicate reality. 
Christopher Rowland says this. He says, Revelation is a classic example of art that stimulates rather than prescribes. The vivid imagery we encounter stirs our imagination, revealing the true reality of God and of our world. So by design, an apocalypse is an imagination stimulating genre, revealing to humans God's plan for the world. So why is this important? Uh, I want to give, give this imagery for understanding the importance of Revelation 4 and 5 and the idea of what's called a diptych. And we have a picture. If, you've ne- if you don't know what a diptych or you haven't taken art history, you're not an art nerd, this, was, this is a pretty popular form of art hundreds of years ago. If you notice, it's two panels, right? It's sometimes they're hinged connected, but you have an image on one side and an image on the other. This is the crucifixion of Christ. This is the judgment of Christ, the last days. And this is uh, Jan van Eyck's. This is a pretty classic diptych, very famous. It's okay if you never heard of it. Um, but why is this important? Because one main theme encapsulated by these two images. So as we're looking at chapters four and five today, imagine chapter four is one panel, chapter five is the other panel. And then take this and think about like if these were stained glass windows and we're gonna look out onto the world today as Christians, we're gonna look through chapter four and chapter five and we're gonna see these images in front of our eyes and it's gonna reshape reality. So these stained glass diptych images shape how we're gonna see God, reality, the world, sin, corruption, redemption, all these things. And so it's this, this is kind of this imagery we're using as we enter. So now that we've transitioned into introduction to introduction to introduction, let's get into the word. Um, and let's follow John and see where he has to take us right now. So this is Revelation chapter four, one through eight. John says this, After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on those thrones were 24 elders. They were clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, around each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature without the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes, all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, it is, and is to come. 
I told you, I gave you a warning saying, things get a little bizarre. And this, even when you read the first few chapters, you're like, okay, kind of makes sense, we can hang. You hit chapter four and you're like, what just happened? What are these things? They're pretty creepy. It, it could kind of freak you out a little bit. But what is happening here is John takes us into this throne room imagery in the setting in heaven. And what does he see? What do we see in the middle of this, the center? We see God. So John shows us God is on this throne. And what is described in this room, it's, there's precious materials. The room is adorned. It's beautiful. It's lavish. lavish. And why is this important? Because these communicate majesty. They communicate wealth, prestige, glory, honor, and power. There are also these images and these descriptions are so deeply intertwined with the Old Testament of the Bible, their meaning, and the tradition of Hebrew people. So let me use one thing, for example, the rainbow. Uh, it means a lot of things to us today, but every time I see a rainbow or when I see the rainbow in the book of Revelation in this th- setting, I step back to the flood scene in Old Testament when, no, when God wipes the earth, he tries to redeem all the earth through the flood and he saves people through Noah. And then he's like, I can never do that again. I want to save and redeem and restore my people, but never again will I destroy them. So I need a new covenant. And he puts a rainbow in the sky to mark that. So now we've entered the final plan for history and God's throne is marked by his promise. So we see this this imagery, it's so deeply connected. John is uh, describing this throne room scene. And the next thing we're going to have to see and understand is every number, every image is very specific and intentional. Some people talk about John as being one of the most masterful uh, authors and using literary tools in biblical works. And it's kind of not really understood until you really get in depth with some of this stuff, how deeply he integrates numbers. Let's just start. So if God is in the center of the room, we walk out a little bit. And the first thing, what do we see? We see 24 thrones, sat on the thrones, 24 elders. This number 12 to first century people is huge. It just means the fullness of God's people. It represents the God's chosen people, the people who he's chosen to bless, to known so they can bless the world. So if we see 12 or, I know you're like, hey, there's 24 there, any multiple of 12, so I'm gonna like lose my math, 12, 24, whatever after that. (laughs) I haven't reviewed my timetables in a while. You put me on the spot. Um, So 12 times two, I can do that. It's 24. Easy math. You look at the Old Testament, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 leaders or elders of those tribes represent half of the 24. Then the next set of 12 is the 12 apostles that are established through Jesus. So you have 12 elders of Israel, 12 apostles. 24, these are the elders you see. Um, And this is quite what common belief in where I would land is how do you describe and understand these 24 people? Um, So what I think is most important though in in identifying and seeing in these 24 thrones and the 24 elders on them is notice this little detail where it says they had a crown. And if you notice again, when you read that is what do they do with their crowns? 
they cast them at the foot of the throne where God is. And as Anthony talked through chapters two and three, and we saw the introductions to churches, the church in Smyrna, their reward for faithfulness to God, following Jesus Christ, if they conquered and overcame the powers of the world and lived faithfully, they were gifted the crown of life. And so when he said that, I was like, oh my gosh, like that connects to next week. We got to know this. So basically, these 24 elders and leaders and people of God, as they cast their, their crowns and bow and worship, they're giving their life to the king, to God in the center of all things, and they're willing to submit to him in all things. And that's probably why they're put in the middle of this room, because they've fully submitted all they have. So... Now, the next thing we come to after we see these 24 elders is we see the seven torches or the seven spirits of God. We're like, what? I thought there's only one spirit. There's the Trinity. Wait, how is there seven? Seven simply means perfect or completion. So when John describes the seven spirits of God, he's simply saying, in, as the, in Jesus, as his life was poured out and Pentecost came and he was raised from the dead, he poured his spirit out, that the perfect spirit in, in completion, the spirit has been given to the world, satisfying anything we need, satisfying all people. So it's not necessary, it doesn't have to be seven separate spirits, it's just this means complete spirit of God is available, poured out, available in the world. So... Before we come to last, I want to show there's a couple pieces of uh, drawings. So if you can see this, this is uh, from a website I found, just an artist's rendition of the throne room. And you see these four living creatures, you see lightning, you see the sea, carnelian, you see the 24 elders, their throne, or their, sorry, their crowns and God in the center. Uh, next one, please. And here we come. And this is a little bit cut off, but it's probably one of the better representations. You see these four living things, and they, like, when you read Revelation, you're like, wait, it literally says there's eyes within, over them, inside. You're like, what is going on with these? This is weird. This is bizarre. Um, it is. It's kind of weird. It's kind of scary, too. Um, so anyways, notice that there's four of these creatures, right? And they all represents some part of creation. When you see the number four in Revelation and in, in Bible and Jewish understanding, this is symbolic to universality, especially with creation. So when you see like the east, the west, the south, the north, all these dimensions basically is a descriptor of the entire world. When you see the number four, it's the entire world all encompassing. So we interact with these four creatures. So they're symbolizing, representing that all creation is looking to is seeing God and is not only looking to God, seeing God, but the place of these creatures representing all creation in the throne room signifies that all creation is upheld and sustained by the word of God. It wasn't just this starting moment in the beginning, it just all came about, but from the start till now and forever will be, it, creation is upheld and is looking to be upheld by God. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 29, he says, even one of these sparrows flying does not fall to the ground apart from God. So 
When I go outside and we, I look at the Aspens and as there, we're gonna be taking all our Instagram photos and new profile pics for the season. We go to whatever the Aspen corner is up on Snowball. When, it, when I go out into there, what I see is, and this is also really nerdiness, I'm like, I see these trees created through molecular bonds, through atoms, the smallest molecules as, as the um, water is carried up by Van der Waal interactions and these little moments of science that we have, I see, I'm like, wow, this is amazing that this one tree and then this entire forest and all the globe is upheld at every minute detail by the word of God. And, and science is really fun and cool, but it, and even though this is true of how these molecular systems work, that doesn't exclude God from this reality that John is teaching, that God actually upholds all creation, all the things to the absolute most atomic level. And that's where we see these four living creatures representing being upheld by God in all creation. So... Now that we've walked through the throne room, we have a better idea of what some of these numbers mean. We have a better understanding of these bizarre images, I hope, so you don't get too scared the next time you uh, read Revelation. But now I want to ask this question to you. Why does John use the throne room imagery? And your answer is, you know what, Kyle? Because the Spirit led him in there, he gave him this vision, and he wrote it down. That's what the book of Revelation said. Okay, you're right. Let me rephrase this question for you. Why did the Holy Spirit take John into a vision, into the throne room, and see all this stuff? Oh, I'm glad you asked that question. Let me, uh, let me answer that for you. Because to us, and honestly, I like think about this, it seems a bit arbitrary, unnecessary to us as um, in our culture of Western, um, Westernized Americans to understand the throne room. Like we, how far removed are we from monarchies? Uh, we don't really experience dictatorship. We, we haven't experienced some kind of this uh, centralized power as the majority of world history would have had. So we're removed and we got to do a little bit of work to understand how strong this imagery would be and why we use the throne room. Um, so what does the throne room represent? Power is centralized. So we have war, power, prestige, control, wealth, conquest, ultimacy, worship, strategy, leadership, kings, queens. All these are components of earthly worldly throne rooms, right? And they mimic this throne room in heaven. So as we see in why would John take us to the throne room in the Roman context, there's, this was so important because the throne room would have been a central symbol for Rome, for the Caesar, representing all these aspects of power. And however, but what we know of people in power is what's the reality of these throne rooms? Like we could put them up and be like, oh yeah, this, this place is amazing and great, but Honestly, what happens and what they're associated with is our reality of these powers is oppression, corruption, there's greed, vileness, manipulation, dictatorship, 
control and false worship. And this is more the reality we interact with as we've looked at history and we look to some of our leaders today. And so to better understand this, this symbolic imagery of throne room, um, I have a real world, world example. So I have another picture for you. So uh, if we could... This is a throne room. This was built maybe 70 to 100 years after John wrote Revelation, but it's um, uh, one of the Caesars moving. It moved a little bit um, west of Rome, but this was the center of power. But if you look at this, this is a throne room. Do you see these people? If I'm not blocking them, how small they are. This is a massive building. Could you imagine if you're called in to, the, to see the Caesar I was thinking, I was like, I'd probably be anxious. I'd be intimidated. Uh, next picture. Um, you see them. This thing is massive. This has been converted into kind of like a chapel. But like, if you think about modern throne rooms or you see any of the, the Queen of England and some of the stuff, like their throne rooms are elegant. They're decorated. They're elaborate because they're trying to communicate something. So you enter this space and you're like, wow, the one person who sits and is centered in this room and space must be ultimate power, like authority and in control of all things because this whole place rules the world um, and at least their known world. So it is so important that we understand this, this central symbolism of the throne room. And mostly because when we look back in the Bible, in John, in Christians, these were small they were meek people in comparison to the power and the armies of Rome and the, the ideologies of Rome. This Christian message was being oppressed. It was being uh, trying to be snuffed out and ended. And so why does the Holy Spirit give us this entrance into the throne room? He does this because God is going to reveal something to John and to us. The one who sits on the throne, God, he rules all history. God is the center of all creation and he is surrounded and he's worshiped as he is worthy in his throne room. So this symbolic scene in Revelation 4, this, what does it reveal? What does it reveal about reality is this, that God is the one who has been in control of history and is in control of the future. So let me say that again. This throne room imagery in chapter four reveals the reality that God has always been in control of history and he is in control of the future. So if we're honest with ourselves, um, we still probably admit like, yeah, this, I get this, but understanding the throne room symbols is like, yeah, it's still kind of weird because we don't have a king or queen. You know, we're not ruled in this way anymore. Um, and we don't have this experience with the monarchs or centralized empirical power. And honestly, praise God for that. Like we have a beautiful freedom and a different government system and we can praise God for that. But this doesn't exclude the existence of contemporary throne rooms. We have these rooms, we have these places of power, of oppression, of greed, corruptness, and authority. They exist still. So I want to give us three examples to look at and understand how do we see a contemporary throne room. And, and I also want to say, I can <clears throat> nuance this a little bit with like some of these spaces, and it's not all evil and bad. 
it's some is some of the stuff is like corrupt like sin has infiltrated all things and God in the center in his throne room rules perfectly righteously and justly our contemporary throne rooms mimic him but the sin distorts so yeah I'm going to come hard and be like hey these are the kinds of stuff, the evils these things create but some of it in it too is like there's goodness to this stuff as well so it's just focusing on the some of the vileness corruptness helps us really understand how seduced into these messages we are so first of all let's talk about these uh throne rooms first one i was thinking corporate boardrooms men and women gather they scheme about how they can sell more product to us they have taken people as image bearers and they've now created them as consumers so they see them not as people, but they're like, hey, look at that dollar sign. Hey, they have resources. How do we get that? So they've converted and twisted the image of God to be consumption and dollar signs. So in these rooms of power, their status and the wealth, it's centralized. And the decisions they make, it affects the environment. It shapes our culture. Uh, they influence communities. Their, their marketing, their media strategies, they lure us in and they promise us that our world will be a better place if we buy what they have. If we promote their product more, we'll find that satisfaction we're longing for. Spirit of God, let us witness to your true reality. Let these people in power, let them advocate for justice, for mercy, for generosity. Let us not be deceived by these clever schemes. Next throne room, let's talk about economic markets. The New York Stock Exchange is what I was thinking about for this one. And this is probably one where I fall in because like finance money stuff is like pretty fun to me. Also like always kind of money lives in my mind all the time. I'm like, oh, budget, got to talk about this. Oh, I think we spent too much. So like this is, this is one that hits hard for me too. So New York Stock Exchange, as we are devoted to our ticker symbols, we anxiously spend hours of our time, we watch our stocks, we, they rise, they fall. Our moods, they're determined by the increase and decrease of our stocks. Our future hope and security rests, it lies in our shares increasing in value. Will I be able to retire? Will I have the luxury, comfortable life in the future because my stocks have increased? My, all my dividends have paid out? What if I lose it all? What if the market crashes? What will I do? What are we going to do? Lord, let us place the future in your hands as you are truly in control. Let us not be consumed with the worries of the world. The third one, and my apologies, it's going to hit real hard for some of you guys. <laughs> uh, the ultimate religion. Let's talk about sports arenas, the locker room, maybe those box office seats up there, you know, the sports team owners sit in. Um, we so generously give our money to memorabilia. We save up for those playoff tickets. We worship as we cheer, we chant, we jump, we throw up our arms and we scream and we shout every time they score. Our life is literally dictated by game schedules, by our fantasy drafts. Of course, we're in community, duh, but only if that doesn't interfere with our game day or our schedules for this. 
you can be a part of my life, but we got to watch this together. Nothing will keep us from watching our team win, not even church. Jesus, let us enjoy the creation of sports, but not allow them to define our lives. Jesus, give us the boldness to use our love for sports as a way to love and reach our fellow fans. So these contemporary throne rooms mimic the reality of God's throne room, but none of them fully holds the worthiness or power of God. They all just mimic aspects of his and they're distorted through sin. And this imagery, this central imagery of Revelation chapter four shows us what throne room truly rules, who sits on the throne, it's God, and he is in control of the past and in the future. So, as we transition from chapter four to chapter five, remember that diptych imagery I talked about? We have one panel, we have another panel. Chapter four, John, he is an amazing artist. What does he do? If you look at good art, you see light in the things, the painting, the way if they're like pointed, it draws your attention to one place. John introduces this thing at the start of chapter five, a scroll. When he mentions the scroll, this diptych of chapter four draws your imagination to chapter five. Let me read chapter five, one through seven. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So like I said, John puts the scroll into our imagination. You see the scroll, it brings us to chapter five and introduces this tension. When John sees the scroll, what does he do? He starts weeping because there's no one who can open it. Honestly, the first time I read this, I was like, what is the scroll for? Like, I don't know what a scroll is for or why. As we read this, and why does John have this immense response of just weeping and crying? Because when he sees the scroll, he knows whatever is on that scroll coming from God, the king on the throne, is going to dictate what happens to the rest of the world. John, he's living in this place of corruption, of pressure. His friends are being killed. His family, everyone he knows is being persecuted as Christians. And some of the scholars believe he's maybe one of the last of his, his like, train of people or school people. So he's like worried about continuing. He's like, wait a second, this Messiah, Jesus, did he fail us? What is happening? So the Holy Spirit, once again, 
confronts these anxieties of John and he shows him a scroll. And John knows that against all this power and oppression of Rome, God has a plan. So what is this plan? First of all, this scroll, he's weeping, but an elder says, weep no more. There is one who is worthy. He is the lion of Judah. He is the root of Jesse. And so the lion of Judah, honestly, is probably, most of us may be familiar, Jesus is referred to the lion of Judah a lot. Pretty central symbolism for Jesus. It's power, it's might, it's authority. It's like kind of war language in the Bible. So you probably hear that. C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, God is represented as lion, as Aslan. So we see this pretty often. But you know what's most important to understand right here? When you read Revelation and you see this really interesting thing John does, John hears with his ears, the one who is worthy is the lion of Judah. But then when you read Revelation, what does it say? John looked and he saw a slaughtered lamb. He saw a weak meek, pathetic, bloodied lamb slain, not a lion. This image of Jesus is the paradox of the slaughtered lamb. And also as we read into Revelation, John uses all senses, the sight, hearing, feeling, smelling, to engage our imagination. So this is critical that he, John hears the lion, but he turns to see the slaughtered lamb. And the slaughtered lamb is the one who is worthy to open up the scroll. Why is this a paradox? Think about, let's recall, Peter, one of the apostles, really close to Jesus, very um, action-oriented. Jesus is being arrested. What does Peter do? He draws his sword and he slashes the servant's ear off. And Jesus says, no, touches him and heals him. Peter, along with most Jewish people in Hebrews, literally believed the Messiah would come, there would be a holy war, and the Messiah would lead them to victory, to overthrow Rome, to overthrow all powers, and they would rule the world again through this victorious battle. That's the line of Judah, the leader of that. So when Jesus enters the scene and he's crucified people it's mind-blowing it is so confusing for them to be like you are the messiah no you just died on the cross you're naked you're beaten you cannot be the messiah it is a mind-blowing for people they had to re completely re shift their paradigms and beliefs And this is so critical that we see the paradoxes. It is the slaughtered lamb who conquered. The slaughtered lamb of Jesus is Jesus who opens these seals. And as I read Revelation 5, the one story in, in the gospel I always go back to is Jesus always alluded to his way of victory, if you read back to him. And there's this one story, it's called the triumphal entry. Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem for the final time to worship in the ceremony. And he's like, hey, go saddle up this donkey. And he gets on a donkey. He rides this donkey into town. People are singing, they're praising him. They're laying palm branches down on the path as he rides in. And what does he do? He goes to the temple and he worships. He breaks bread with his friends. He eats, he prays for them. He submits himself 
to a false trial, to beatings, to the cross, to being crucified. So why, why is that triumphal entry important? When you look at other kings, other victors, they would go out to battle to conquer lands. When they come back to their city, they would strap up on the noblest of steeds, biggest horse they could find, the cleanest, purest steed. They'd be in the nicest gowns or armor, whatever there was appropriate. They would ride in. They'd have a chain of trail of all their um, captives behind them, usually probably naked and shame. People throw stuff. The people would be shouting. The whole city would shut down for these kings to ride in as the troops would parade around them and they would show their victory to the people and that their peace and prosperity was claimed by this brutal battle that was the normalcy when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey the donkey one is a symbol of peace everyone was like this is the moment Jesus is stepping up he's gonna take Rome over what does he do he goes and worships he doesn't engage them in battle he doesn't even lift a finger when he's beaten He doesn't even try to defend himself against Pontius Pilate. He just lets him cast accusations. He submits. So this is radical, the paradox of the slaughtered lamb who is worthy. And this is so important for us to understand because as we press into the book of Revelation and and what what Gorman says about the hermeneutical lens of these two chapters, we see, and what we'll get into is, as Jesus is the slaughtered lamb who is worthy, he starts opening each seal. And as he opens these seals, the, the plan, God's plan for redemption, for the final acts of all history is written in the scroll. So we want to see, we want to know what John sees. So John is drawn in, he's like, I can't wait to know what is the end result of of God's plan. Show us, Lord, show us what we have. So as we get into Revelation, we're going to see that and we're going to see it through these images, but we must be looking through this lens and seeing that God is in control of the past and always has been in control of the future. His plan is controlling where the future is going and Jesus is the slaughtered lamb in this paradox that the slaughtered lamb is the one who conquered. This is our reality, and this is what um, interprets the book of Revelation for us. So keep joining us, keep watching, keep listening to these as we step in. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll enter our time of reflection. Lord God, I just thank you for just your word being available to us, Lord God. I just thank you for the the men and women who you've gifted with wisdom and intellect and just desire to draw so deep into your word to understand the context, the culture, the the language, so we can be shaped and formed by uh, more rich and more robust um, faithful theologies, Lord God. I thank you for these images, Lord, that Lord, we can place our control and our trust of all things in this world in your hands. God, I think about the scriptures that say, cast your anxieties on me because I care. Lord, let us cast our anxieties on you, Father, because you care for us as your people. Lord, thank you for the way of the cross. Lord God, help us to see Jesus as the one who gave his life for us. Help us to live and give our life for those around us, Lord God. Help us to understand you and your people, Lord God, and pray in Jesus' name, amen.